So here we are on this Christmas Sunday, and we've been in a four-week series, as many of you would know. So let's just reflect on where we started. So we started with talking about the, the expectation of Christmas, the anticipation, and uh, Sarah shared with us that great uh, word on Anna. Anna, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, this, this really old woman who had spent years and years in the temple, fasting, praying, just waiting for the Messiah. And her expectation was met. And then, remember, she went and began to proclaim to all who were looking for salvation in Israel that this child had been born. And then we looked at the meaning, or true meaning of Christmas. And we saw that even though things like generosity and family and kindness and those kinds of things, even though they're good things, they are not the true meaning of Christmas, as Braden reminded us. But the true meaning of Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. And then, of course, last week, Cheryl spoke to us about that, the deep longing within the hearts of all people, a longing that cannot be met apart from the Christ of Christmas. And so today, we're going to look very specifically at the incarnation. And so we're going to look at verse 14, just actually the first um, part of verse 14 of John chapter 1. And we're going to look at these words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we, we speak of the incarnation. The, the word incarnation means, it means to become flesh. That's the meaning of the word. And so that's where we want to start. With becoming flesh. The word became. Now, that's interesting right there, if you think about it. The word became, what's interesting is that, what's implied, obviously, is that there's a pre-existence. So he became something that he previously was not. He previously was one thing and then became something that he was not he became flesh. Now, that, that can't be said of anybody else, right? Speaking of our births into the world as human beings, 
no one would say about us, we became flesh. Because we only exist in that context of our flesh. There, there's no uh, pre-existing spirit as some have falsely taught. There, there is no pre-existing spirit that then at some point takes on flesh. We are our flesh. And that, that's uh, a bit of a uh, diversion here for a moment, but it's an important thing to realize because right now we're living in a time when people are trying to disconnect themselves from their flesh. People say like, well, I know this is what my body says I am, but I'm really not that. I'm something else. There's a young woman in Scandinavia who says that I know that I, I look like a human being, but I'm really a cat. <laughs> Seriously. She's a cat. So she has this outward body that appears human, but, but her, really inside she is a cat, she says. But the truth of the matter is no, you're not a cat. <laughs> you're a human being. And of course, other people are using this kind of thinking to say, well, I'm not really um, what I biologically appear to be. I'm something else because I feel different than what my biology is saying. But your biology is you. So with Jesus... Jesus, of course, as we're saying, Jesus became flesh. He previously was not flesh. He became a human being. A fifth century theologian named Cyril, he said this. He said, indeed, the mystery of Christ runs the risk of being disbelieved precisely because it is so incredibly wonderful. For God was in humanity. He who was above all creation was in our human condition. The invisible one was made visible in the flesh. He who is from the heavens was in the likeness of earthly things. The immaterial one could be touched. That's it. And John says this when he writes his letter, his first letter. He says, that which we have seen, that which we have gazed upon, that which our hands have held, that word that was with the Father and was revealed to us. So that's what we're being told. The word became flesh. The word became human. But here's a question. How human was he? This is, a, this is a, a, a theological question that goes back to the very earliest days of the history of the church. Okay. Well, we know that Jesus appeared to be human 
But, but wasn't it that he was just um, human in, in appearance? You know, he was God, he just took on this body, but he wasn't really human. Or, or was it that he was sort of like half God and half man? Or was it that he was a person with a dash of God included? These are theological positions that were uh, held, debated, refuted. See, what the Bible teaches is that Jesus was fully human. And I think that we have in our generation as Christians, I think we've missed this to some extent. I think we've been so anxious to emphasize the deity of Christ or the divinity of Christ because after all, uh, the modern day cults, the pseudo-Christian cults, they haven't so much denied the humanity of Christ as the deity of Christ. So. I know in my apologetic efforts regarding the person of Christ, I've spent most of my time over the years arguing for the divinity of Christ. In the early centuries of the church, the argument was the opposite. The argument was about the humanity of Christ. And so how human was Jesus? The answer is he was fully human except sin. He was as human as we are, except without sin. So in that sense, he would have been like Adam was. Remember, Adam was fully human, obviously. He was the first human. But he was born, or created, rather, uh, without sin. So Jesus is fully human, except for sin. And Hebrews tells us this, the writer to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, verse 17, that he, speaking of Christ, had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. You see, if Jesus wasn't fully human, then he didn't have a fully human experience. And if he didn't have a fully human experience, then he will not be able to do for us what we need. We need a merciful high priest. We need someone who um, is actually affected the way we are. And, and also in Hebrews, remember it says, it says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses or who cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. That's the older translation from the King James, but that's a, that's a great translation. We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities, but one who was tested, tempted, tried in all points as we are. So Jesus had a fully human experience. He was, at times, hungry. He was thirsty. Um, we, we remember in John's Gospel in the fourth chapter, Jesus comes to Samaria. It's the middle of the day. He's, he's weary from the journey. He sits down to rest. He's thirsty. A woman comes to draw water from the well, and he says, give me a drink. 
Jesus would have been sick at times. Now, I have just come to realize that. Before, I would have said, no, Jesus didn't experience sickness because um, he was sinless and sin is, uh, sickness is related to sin, so therefore Jesus uh, would not have experienced sickness. But I have since changed my position on that. Because had he not experienced sickness, he would not have been fully human because all human beings experience sickness. So he experienced sickness. And you know what's interesting? In Isaiah 53, the, the passage in Isaiah, I can't remember exactly what verse it is, around like verse six or something. Uh, but it says, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He bore our griefs the, the Hebrew word is literally he bore our sicknesses. And Matthew actually quotes it that way. Matthew uses, when, when Matthew's describing the healing that Jesus is performing on people, he says it's in fulfillment of him bearing our sicknesses. And so, he would have had that human experience. Jesus was perplexed at times. He was perplexed. Remember, in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, if this cup can pass from me, there's perplexity there. Jesus was stressed. Remember, again, in the garden, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, indicating the kind of stress that his body was under. Jesus was confused. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I don't think that God had actually forsaken Jesus on the cross, but it seemed that he had because the human experience for all practical purpose indicated that God had abandoned him. So as I said a moment ago, quoting from Hebrews 4, Verse 15, in all points he was tested and tried as we are yet without sin. In Philippians chapter two, Paul tells us something that is so amazing about Christ. He, he tells us that Christ was in very nature God, but remember that passage there, he humbled himself, he became of no reputation, he took upon himself the form of a servant. But you know what it tells us there too? It says that he did not use his divinity to his own advantage. When, when it says, um, who being in, in the form of God or who being very in very nature God, I like that translation in the NIV better, who being in very nature God, because that's, that's clearer. I mean, being in the form of God, if you think about it, you can't be in the form of God and not be God, but somehow people sometimes miss that. So the NIV just says it really bluntly, who being in very nature God, did not consider it robbery or something to be grasped at to be equal with God but a better translation is that he did not use his divinity for his own advantage. 
And we have an amazing illustration of that in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? What Satan sought to get Jesus to do was the very thing that Jesus did not do. He did not use his divinity to his own advantage. Satan says, if you're the son of God, take these stones and turn them into bread. Jesus doesn't do it. Why? Because people can't do that. God can do that, but people can't do that. So you see, Jesus doesn't use his divinity to his own advantage. It would have been to his own advantage. He had fasted 40 days. It would have been to his advantage to take these stones and turn them into bread. But he wouldn't do it. He takes, the devil takes him to that, the pinnacle of the temple, remember? And he says, jump from here. Because it's written that God will send his angels and they will take charge over you and they will bear you up so that you don't dash a foot against the stone. Jesus refused. Because that would have been superhuman. That would have been godlike to jump from the pinnacle of the temple and, and suffer no injury. But, but Jesus doesn't use his divinity to his own advantage. Jesus is here as a human being like you and like me. So he became flesh. He was incarnate. Who was incarnate? The word. The word. Now, many of you know that this is the, the Greek word is logos. And the, the idea of Logos, well, it was a prevalent idea. Just the word itself, or memra would be like the Hebrew equivalent. These, these were prominent philosophical ideas at the time. But, but the, the, the gist of it is that words reveal thoughts. Thoughts imply a thinker. Thinking presupposes being. As Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. You can't have a thinker that doesn't exist, right? So logos to the Hebrews was the wisdom that formed the universe. So in, in Hebrew philosophy, the, the, the logos or the memra in Hebrew, but of course the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, so they would have used the word logos as well. So, but, but the idea was that the universe, there was this, this wisdom that formed the universe, and of course the Hebrews would have connected that back to God, but the Greeks had a similar idea with no connection back to God. So to the Greeks, the logos is the mind behind matter. 
So the Greeks looked at the world and they saw the design and they concluded there's some abstract, you know, there's some mind that has produced this. The apostles declared the Logos is God the Son. And that's what John tells us here. And remember verse 18 that we read, no one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. So that, that's what's happening. The word is God. According to John, the one who became flesh was none other than God, the Son. Theologian uh, Beth Felker-Jones, she wrote this in her um, little theology book called Practical, I think it's called Practical Christianity. She said, all those things that belong only to God are true of Jesus. Jesus truly human is really God. Everything Jesus does from the moment of his conception in Mary's womb up to today, he does as God with us, God among us. When we meet Jesus, we meet God and humanity in person. I love that. When we meet Jesus, we meet God and humanity in person. So as, you know, many, many places remind us of this, but uh, I love what the writer to the Hebrews says about Christ, that he is the, um, he is the brightness of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his person, or is he, he is the express image of his person. And Paul says something similar when he writes to the Colossians that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so the word, God the Son, not God the Father, but God the Son. And this is, of course, the biblical teaching of the Trinity, the triunity of God. God the Son, the word became flesh and dwelt among us dwelt among us so christmas is the it's the remembrance of that event that moment when god the son came and dwelt among us again the the greek word is interesting because the greek word is more literally tabernacled or pitched his tent among us. And the significance of that, of course, is we have a whole section of scripture that speaks of a tabernacle. Remember back in the book of Exodus. In the latter part of the book of Exodus, we have all of this detailed description of this tabernacle that was uh, to be built. And then we have the description of 
the tabernacle being built. And what was that tabernacle? That was the place where we see at the end of the book of Exodus, the, the presence of the Lord descends upon this tabernacle and fills this place and now you have God dwelling among his people. But that was a picture of what was to come. Because what would ultimately happen is that God would come to dwell among his people not in a tabernacle made of animal skins, but in human flesh. So he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. But here's the most important thing. The most important thing is that he remains with us. And you see, this is what Christmas is, right? It's God with us. Not God was with us 2,000 years ago when he came and was born in Bethlehem. But God is currently with us. He's presently with us. He's permanently with us. And Jesus made this clear in John chapter 14, verses 16 through 18, he said this. He said to the disciples, he said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So remember at this point, Jesus is about to go to the cross. And we can never disconnect the incarnation from the cross because the primary purpose of the incarnation was the cross. So, you know, when you're preaching Christmas, you're preaching Good Friday and Easter. They, they all go together. And so Jesus is about to go to the cross and he's telling the disciples that he is going and they're anxious and fearful and depressed and he says, don't worry, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then he explains what he means. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter, or you could translate Paracletus, counselor or helper. He will give you another comforter, counselor, helper to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. He will remain with you and shall be in you. Wow. So the God who came and pitched his tent among us, still dwells among us, he lives in us. He lives in us. And I was thinking of all of the wonderful Christmas carols as we call them, or hymns, or however you want to refer to them, Christmas songs, especially the older ones, the 18th and 19th century ones. They just seem to capture this theology so, so beautifully. The, the great Charles Wesley hymn we sang it this morning, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Don't you love that? 
Isn't it great when you're at the mall and you hear those words and you're like, man, the gospel is being preached right now over the loudspeaker in the mall. This is amazing. But as I was thinking about all of the different Christmas songs that, you know, talk to us about this, because I wanted to include a Christmas hymn in the message this morning, I settled on O Little Town of Bethlehem. And I'm going to read to you as we close the lyrics. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above, while mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together proclaim the holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us our Lord Emmanuel. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Emmanuel, remember, God with us. God with us. And as the, the song says, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. That's Christmas. It's, it's Christ entering in. It's Christ becoming God with us, literally taking up residence in our lives. Being among us permanently as his people collectively, but being in us individually. And that this has always been the message of the scriptures, and this has always been the message of the church. The other night I watched, um, it's a really fun movie, The Man Who Invented Christmas, and it's about um, Dickens, and it's about the Christmas Carol. And it's fascinating because at the end of the story, it said that... Um, it was the influence of the book, The Christmas Carol, that kind of set the, the thinking of people about Christmas for generations to come. And the thinking there has to do with, uh, you know, the generosity and the love and the care and the kindness and, and all of those things. And uh, if you were here for Braden's message, you remember um, the Muppet version of it, but the message was essentially the same. Um, 
And, and it's a wonderful story. I love A Christmas Carol. It's a fantastic story. Did you know it was originally a Christmas horror story? That's how Dickens, that's how he framed it, a Christmas horror story. Because he's visited by these spirits, right? But, you know, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful piece of literature. It's a wonderful story. But it, it's not the story. It's not the gospel. But this message of God with us is the gospel and has always been the gospel. And it's still the good news today. And it's for everyone. Where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. So we never want to let a Christmas pass where we don't remind others that there is a real meaning of Christmas that has very specific and personal application for you. And if you miss this part of it, you really miss the point. Where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. You know, we read in the verses we read today, as many as received him, to them he gave the power, right, authority, to become the children of God. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. That's what Christmas is. God coming to us, and abiding with us, remaining with us, dwelling among us, living with us, living in our very own hearts. And when I say living in our hearts, we understand that that means he takes up residence in us as his people. We become the temple of God. And we have that very personal experience with the one who created us, who created all things, but who was in all points tested as we are, yet without sin, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And so we all know we don't need to rehearse it. It's been a rough year. It's been a tough year. And it's not letting up. But nevertheless, God is with us. He has come to dwell among us. And where meek souls will receive him. What's a meek soul? A meek soul is a, is a person who says, I can't save myself. I'm not good enough. I need a savior. Anyone who admits that, the gift is, is theirs. The gift is given to everyone, but until you receive it, it doesn't benefit you. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son, 
But it's only those that receive him that benefit from the gift. And so may we not miss what Emmanuel, God with us, is really all about. So thank you, Lord, for these wonderful realities. Lord, thank you that we do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tested and tried in every point as we are, yet without sin. And so we can boldly come to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help. Thank you, Lord, that that's what you secured for us in becoming a human being. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for condescending to our low estate so you could elevate us and make us sons and daughters of God. And Lord, I would just pray that there wouldn't be a single person here with us today, whether they're in the building or whether they're outside or whether they're watching online, that would miss the reason you came. But Lord, that their hearts would be open to you. Lord, that they would receive you. As many as received you, you gave them the power to become the children of God. Lord, that they would receive you and that you, as you promised, would enter in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.